this is crazy old Griff throwing out a fastball for everybody. But mm-hmm. I was talking with a friend at the Association of Reproductive Managers meeting last week, and she has a child in early teens. And I said, do you think so-and-so's uh, generation will, do you think more than 50% of them will have children? She said, no. And I said, I totally agree. Again, speculation. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here, you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. The future of fertility preservation, artificial intelligence, practice areas, the metaverse. These are some of the things that I talk about with Dr. Bruno Gaston in my episode today. But before we get to that, a little shout out for Dr. Susan Davies from Chicago. Sometimes I get really lovely messages from you all, and they don't always have to be about business. Sometimes you can send me a personal note because you thought of me from here in the podcast, and I love that. So shout out to Dr. Susan Davies for making my day one time and all the people at her practice, including, but not limited to, Anal and Shannon, and hope everyone there as well. Okay, in today's episode with Dr. Janet Bruno Gaston from the Center of Reproductive Medicine, or by the time you're hearing this, Shady Grove, Houston, she is someone that has dedicated a practice area to fertility preservation. She did her medical school at Morehouse. She did residency at USC, did her fellowship while getting master of clinical investigation at Baylor. And she's presented at many conferences and written on a number of topics, including non-invasive markers of gametes and embryo volatility, PCOS, a number of different things. But what we're talking about today is her practice area in fertility preservation, what the future of it is, the technologies that will disrupt or increase it, and what it's like for younger doctors to go on that kind of career track. So I hope you enjoy today's Inside Reproductive Health with Dr. Janet Bruno Gaston. Dr. Bruno Gaston, Janet, welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Thank you so much. I'm super excited to be here this afternoon. I'm excited to have you and to talk about fertility preservation. I'm interested in a few different areas. One, because I think it's going to be the, it is one of the fastest growing segments of our field. I still think that that is going to increase. Maybe some people thought it was going to grow a lot faster than it did. Maybe some people think it's done growing. I still think it is going to be one of the the fastest growing areas, but I want to start with just how did you decide that this was a particular area of interest for your practice, because there are a lot of young docs listening, or there's people at docs at groups that maybe they were a two doctor group now, but now they're at a seven, 10, 12 Mm -hmm. doctor group. And there's areas for different people to carve out their little niche. And so how did you decide that this was something that you wanted to pursue? Yeah, I think for me, I'm a little biased by my training experience. I trained at Baylor College of Medicine and got an opportunity to work with Dr. Woodard at MD Anderson. So we have a strong exposure to onco fertility during our training. And for me, 
it was a niche that didn't allow me to abandon kind of the basic reproductive physiology and the breadth of reproductive pathology that you would see practicing general REI, but added the complexity of cancer diagnosis and working around that. So it was challenging. It was a very interesting patient population. They're extremely vulnerable. And it's a very humbling position to be able to step in in the midst of everything they're going through and talk about building a family and what future family planning looks like for them. So I really enjoyed that exposure during fellowship and went into private practice. And in my group, there was no one really championing that cause. So it became a very smooth transition for me to help recruit patients, improve access to care, and really advocate for more educational awareness about options for fertility preservation. Because as you alluded to, this field is continuing to grow. The options are becoming unlimited. And it is not only for medically indicated patients, but obviously elective as well. So your interest was piqued by the medically indicated by oncofertility. And then at around this time was, was social egg freezing, as they were calling it, or elective fertility preservation. Was that starting to blow up in the public sphere or was it already kind of being talked about on social media? How did your interest think, from the medically called foresight meet mm-hmm. with that? So I think I was just at the cusp where we were starting to see fertility preservation and specifically site cryopreservation being talked about in public platforms. So you'd see it on a Good Morning America or a t- talk show in the afternoon. It was something that people started talking about. And I think with the shift in society of how people are building their career and thinking about family planning, it was just very intuitive that this, this was something that needed to follow that shift. And while As an infertility specialist, I am not promoting an intentional delay in family planning, but what I am strong and passionate about is providing patients options. And each patient has a different family planning goal. They have a different outlook on where their life is going. And so providing them options is really important for them to help navigate that process. So you're physically in Houston, in the Houston area, right? I am. And I remember in 2015, 2014, 2016, when egg freezing really started to, I wouldn't even say it really took off, but really started to get buzz in New York, LA, San Fran. It was like, okay, it's here now in just a handful of years, it's going to be in Atlanta, Dallas, Houston. And then after that, probably your Cleveland's Buffalo, Detroit, I could say that I'm from one of those areas. And so did that happen in that way? Did you see it, a, a big increase and then start to flatten off? Did you see a continuing, uh, maybe not a hockey stick, but a, an upward into the right curve? What has growth been like or not been like mm-hmm. since you've, you've been practicing in this area? Yeah, I think that's interesting. I can't say if it's been growth from a geographical standpoint, but certainly what I am seeing is different iterations of fertility preservation. Right now, I'll say there is a huge push or advocacy mission to extend fertility preservation to the trans community and even having discussions about that and what that looks like as people are performing gender reassignment surgeries, hormonal therapy, 
And I think as REI, we have to now embed ourselves in that conversation because a lot of that is happening with pediatricians or primary care physicians, depending on where they are in life when they decide to make that transition. But I think an important part of that conversation and something that was missing from that dialogue is whether or not they want children or how they want to build a family. Because for a long time, I think the assumption was a part of making that transition was letting that goal go. And certainly fertility preservation does not require that. And it provides very unique options for that particular patient population to better family planning. So that's one demographic that is Mm -hmm. increasing in utilization of fertility preservation. I wonder if you're seeing it this way, where we think of fertility preservation is for those that want to extend their family building window. And they it's like an extension of their plans. And I wonder if as the generations grow on, a more useful way of thinking about it is maybe not even an extension of plans, but a, an option for people to change their mind. Right? Like, I really wonder if the if the birth rate just continues to decline and doesn't stop. So I think part of what we're seeing in REI right now, part of the reason why everyone is so busy is because mm-hmm. the median age of yeah. childbirth has gone up, right? And so I wonder if that's just, okay, it's gone up until it's gotten to the point where the trend just continues that people don't want to have children, But fertility preservation is an opportunity to say, well, but if you change your mind, do you think people are starting to think, do you think about it that way? Or do you think it's very much the extension of a plan? (laughs) I see both. And I'm smiling because as you were describing that, "Mm, maybe I might change my mind. I mean, I've been across the room and had a patient say that to me. Hey, I don't even know if I want kids. This is something my job is covering and I hadn't thought about it before. And maybe I will in the future. So that's why I'm here today. So certainly patients are starting to look at and think about their reproductive years and say, hey, what do I want to accomplish here? And if family planning is not a part of that immediate goal, certainly fertility preservation can be an option to say, hey, I may be interested in this later on. So yes, I do agree that there is a subset of patients that strictly want to not close the door on that option of building a family in the future. I wonder if it just like becomes what we do as a field. Like I really believe this is total speculation. I have no data to support. This is just crazy old Griff throwing out a fastball for everybody. But Mm -hmm. I was talking with a friend at the Association of Reproductive Managers meeting last week and she has a child in early teens. And I said, do you think so-and-so generation will, do you think more than 50% of them will have children? She said, no. And I said, I totally agree. Again, speculation. And I was like, well, what percentage do you think? And we're like, ah, uh, I don't know, 25%. Again, really? no, no to data whatsoever, but yeah. it seems to me that this is the direction that we're going in. And so we're, what we offer part of of what you all offer as the clinicians in this field is Mm -hmm. the opportunity for someone to not lock that in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, 
I completely agree. And while we don't have data to look at that, long-term regrets, things like that, those studies are just kind of gathering information because as you said, AI in general is in its infancy still when you compare it to other disciplines of medicine and certainly fertility preservation is. So we're still gathering data on what that looks like in terms of utilization, regret, in terms of whether they did not or did not, did or did not use fertility preservation. I don't know if I think there will be a huge paradigm shift in terms of the decision to build families. Certainly finances and and just the structure of our society have changed the way people look at the amount of children they want in their household and when they decide to start their family. But I do agree that having fertility preservation does change the sense of urgency, particularly for women, obviously, in that they can consider other things in life. And when they start considering other things in life differently, I I think there will be a shift in value system. I don't know how long that will take and if we're just seeing that evolve, but yeah, those are my thoughts. Well, I just think for all the people listening that have like preteens and teenagers, it's like, I doubt the ability. <laughs> I doubt the ability of that cohort to be able to raise children. It'd be nice to be wrong, but I really. But I. They're going to have say, the metaverse. I, I say that somewhat in tongue in cheek, but but honestly, Jen, you, you say that kind of joking. I'm dead serious about the metaverse, mm-hmm. and we look at in this. I think the metaverse is at. Now I'm really going to go off on it. <laughs> she's she's going to be like, "Why did I go on this guy's podcast? I came to talk about fertility preservation. And I got him down a rabbit hole of the metaverse. I think it's as possible." Mm-hmm. of a paradigm shifter as genetic testing and CRISPR are for childbirth mm-hmm. that it could. Mm-hmm. So if the value prop behind CRISPR and genetic testing is look at all of these awful diseases and traits that could be avoided, well, yeah. doesn't the metaverse have that to offer at least once it gets to a point where it feels as viscerally real as the yeah. world that you and I are in today. And at that point, it's like, well, well, in the metaverse, I don't have to be short. I don't have to be chubby or scrawny. I can be ripped. I could be six five. I can change my eye color, hair color, skin color whenever I want. Yeah. And I don't even need to maintain this physical form. I can go into another one. I could have children in the metaverse. And so it's scary. I don't have a question there. I don't, I just, <laughs> you can respond to my, you can, uh, you can go. AI is infiltrating every, every aspect of our society. We're not going to be able to evade that. It's interesting to see it in medicine and that's changing our field as well. But I mean, you're right. I don't even think we can fathom right now what that's going to look like for, for the younger generation growing up. It's just going to be so foreign, but I imagine as the technology improves, like you said, and they can address all senses so that you truly feel like you are existing in this virtual world, then yeah. Well, let's get back on solid ground. And you gave me a good segue. You set me up well, which is that artificial intelligence is changing every aspect of everything, much certainly our field. Mm -hmm. Uh, How about fertility preservation in particular? How has AI changed it in the last three or four years, or are most of the changes still to come? And if they are mostly still to come, what do you see on the horizon? 
I think most of the changes are still to come. I don't know if it's specific to fertility preservation, but I will say that there's a, a lot of utility and research going into the use of AI in the lab. And that's because a lot of what we do, a lot of what the embryologists do to their credit is monitoring and picking up and looking for non-invasive markers of embryo viability. And I think AI, just as it has done in radiology and pathology, has been shown to be more effective. Obviously, we need to program it. So the system only works based on what you put in. But I think over time, a lot of what happens in the lab will be taken care of by AI. And it may lead to better surveillance of embryos. It may lead to new markers of embryo viability, new ways for us to assess viability. To your point about a specific example in fertility preservation, one of the things that's difficult in counseling patients is what is a good number? And yes, we have studies looking at the outcomes from women who do oocyte cryopreservation, but at the time of egg cryo, we really know very little about the health of the egg outside of morphology and maturity level. Well, there are a lot of studies looking at metabolic competence, right? So what is happening from a developmental standpoint to suggest that this egg is healthier than the other? And they're using microscopy and fluorescence imaging, and all of that can be streamlined with AI to kind of help better counsel patients on what this means at the time of cryopreservation and preparation for future family planning. So I do see a lot of work there. Is it mostly to come because the technology is not there yet or the business model isn't there yet? Or is it because clinics and labs are slammed and they might not be as adopting the newest possible technology as quickly as possible because they're so busy? Which of those is it? I think a little bit of both. I do think the technology is there. It's being used in other fields. I think we have been slow to adapt, a little behind in that sense. And, and part of it, and to their credit, embryologists, they are very particular. There's a very type A personality and there's ownership in, in what they do. And obviously as a clinician in debt, because I can only do so much, what happens in the lab impacts my patient's outcomes profoundly. And so I think that would be a bit of a culture shift for them, taking away what they have been doing primarily for since the inception of this field. So I think that may be a little bit uncomfortable for them and perhaps for us too. So I think the technology is there. There's not enough data to support it yet, but it's coming. It's well, coming. well, embryologists are so busy right now that even if they're, even if they became the case manager of more <laughs> cases, but their own, or at least that part of their workload is reduced. I don't see them going out of work in the next 10 or 20 years. I think we're, we're, I believe David Sable, when he says we're only doing 200 to 250,000 cycles of the 2 million that we should be doing in mm -hmm. the United States. Mm -hmm. And for years, it really seemed like the clinic was the bottleneck and it's like, okay, well, we can't a lot of, at least maybe since 2017, 2018, a lot of clinics were busy, but they could still do more cycles in the lab if they could convert more patients to treatment. Now it's yeah, probably three quarters of labs are slammed too. And yeah. so I don't see that going out of, out of work. And 
I, w- I wonder what what I, I want to talk more about the oh delay in artificial intelligence or adopting it from your vantage point because probably a couple of times a month, Janet, I get hit up from startups in the IVF space that are in AI. Mm-hmm. And some of them have way too much homework to do. It's like, go prove your concept first and then yeah. give me a call. But some of them, it's like, this is legit. And they're, they're having as hard of a time as anyone getting their product to market. And it seems to me like this could solve a big problem. So can you talk a little bit more about, I don't know if you can think of any examples or, or just maybe why we haven't included AI in fertility preservation as much as perhaps it should be? I think there's still a, a bit of fear of not about how this will replace me, but just some fear about trusting that what we do and the stakes that we take with patients as much as possible, we strive for perfection. And so committing a patient to a process that you're not comfortable to, it's a very difficult transition for both clinicians, the embryologists and researchers. And we should be critical and we should be to adopt things because our field, all of the iterations of that with developmental programming and how that impacts offspring and generations, like we have to be steadfast and holding to a certain standard because we are the gatekeepers that ultimately this technology can impact an entire generation. So I think a bit of it is fear. A bit of it is anxiety with change and not feeling comfortable yet. And I think the data is still lacking. I think, I think there's still room for us to have more robust data to support that science, but the technology is certainly there. The technology is certainly there and it's being used in other fields. And I think it will just take time before we feel comfortable with that. I mean, even oocyte cryopreservation was experimental until 2012, 2013. We've had the technology of, of how to do that and it's evolved and improved, but it still took some time. It still took some time for us to be comfortable with that. You were, you were talking about using AI for embryos a little bit earlier. Is there a bigger mm-hmm. opportunity for oocytes? And I know someone who's doing that. I don't know that I can or that I will. I won't say their name right okay. now, but if people are interested, they can email me privately, but one with the value they purport to bring, propose to bring is that there isn't a way of being able to grade oocytes other than just the embryologist examining each egg, but that there's an opportunity for artificial intelligence simply by compounding all of the possible learning that it can do. Is that an area that you've seen or, or is most of the AI that you've seen been geared toward the embryo? Most has been geared towards the embryo, but I brought up the, just the fluorescence imaging because I, I did a lot of research with PCOS and looking at mitochondria and mitochondrial health and how that translates into embryo health. And one of the things we came across in partnering with the core microscopy at Baylor is just that they have a lot of fluorescent imaging techniques to look at without getting too scientific, but redox potentials and just markers of metabolic competence. And that could be potentially something that is another marker of oocyte viability and does and can be used at the time of cryopreservation to more objectively counsel patients about what they have at the time of freezing. And that's something that can be trained through AI once you start to figure out algorithms and track outcomes. So 
When do you feel like we became ready for prime time? Or do some people still have a way to go? Does it depend on the lab? Does it depend on the clinic becoming ready for prime time for fertility preservation in the field? Because I'm not a clinician. Sometimes that makes me ask dumb questions, but sometimes it gives me a perspective of looking at this from someone who is not educated about it, which is the majority of patients, their first go around. Mm -hmm. And one concern had been that, well, we, we know how well these eggs freeze, but we don't know how well they thaw. And so when do you feel like we became ready for prime time for fertility preservation to market it, to offer it to the majority of patients who could benefit from it? Or does it still depend on the lab? Are there still people who aren't ready for prime time? I just got back from the Association of Reproductive Managers meeting in Atlanta. And you know what everyone was talking about? Every embryologist, every nurse, every manager, every practice owner that was there was talking about burnout. That's what everybody's talking about everywhere, by the way, in every aspect of the workforce. Everyone's talking about burnout. And we can keep trying to replace people who also seem to be burnt out. The people that we're bringing in are burnt out from something else. So that's one solution. We can also do things to make the log lighter because when you take 10 people on a log and you take four of them off, those six people are burnt out. So if you can't put four more people back on the log or you can't put six more people back on the log, you have to make that load lighter. And one way of doing that is using engaged MD. And I'm at the point now where I feel like it could be a real disservice to your staff to not be using engaged MD at the point where so many of your staffs are overworked. So many of your labs are slammed, but also your managers, your nurses, your billing team, that anything that we can do to take things off of any of their plates, especially we're not just taking something off their plate in the moment, but we're also using that to make their interactions and lives with patients easier and better beyond those tasks, we should be using it. And that's what Engaged MD does. Your nurses and your care staff should not be doing things like telling the same thing to the same patients over and over again when the patient has too much information to absorb at that time anyway, when they could be talking to really educated patients, meaning that you've educated them by using Engaged MD's platform ahead of time, having a a smaller window where they're repeating things and not having to do things like track down consents because Engaged MD does all of that for you. Burnout, it's the worst that I've seen since I've been in the field. If you can replace all of your people and and overstaff them, great. Most of us can't. And so when we have to use technological solutions, and for those of you that are listening, EngagedMD is already in more than half of practices about there. And if you're not there, you're now on the wrong side of the bell curve, and it could be at the expense of your staff. And so I hope that you'll use the opportunity to go to EngagedMD.com slash IRH. They'll give you 25% off your implementation fee if you use my name or you use Inside Reproductive Health, mentioned that you heard it on the podcast, but don't do it for me. Do it for your staff. Engagedmd.com slash IRH. Now back to my conversation with Dr. Janet Bruno Gaston. So when do you feel like we became ready for prime time for fertility preservation to market it, to offer it to 
the majority of patients who could benefit from it? Or does it still depend on the lab? Are there still people who aren't ready for prime time? I don't think so. I think most people are very comfortable fertility preservation. I think once ASRM moved the experimental label and we had all of the studies looking at long-term outcomes, most people were very comfortable. Now, I will say that there's certainly an increase in advocacy because you have a lot more celebrities talking about fertility preservation. It has infiltrated social media. And so it has a bigger platform primarily through the work of the patients. They have been advertising this more for us than we have, if I want to be honest about that. And through that need, I think is what has drawn our attention to say, Hey, this is something that they value. This is something that's important to them. And so because it's important to them, it has to become important to me. I was going to ask about the, the advertising part coming from the people are seeing celebrities mm-hmm. talk about it and, and, and following them on social media of, of their journeys. Is this an area that is still under referred from other providers? Even before, let's even before we get to the elective side, even on just the onco side, is this still under referred from other providers? I'm so glad you said that. I embarrassingly so embarrassingly so. It is difficult to create a network that geographically spans a large region outside of a metropolitan hub like Houston or big cities that you mentioned. So that really creates a disparity for patients on what they're able to be offered, if they're offered, and what they're able to receive it in a timely manner. And to me, that's just uncomfortable because this is standard part of REI that any group should be able to perform for patients. And the fact that there are these disparities that exist one city outside of here is, is just very disheartening. But to your point, this is not even entering into the elective space. This is speaking in just medically indicated. I can't tell you how many patients I see after chemotherapy and and they say to me, well, no one told me they said that I should kind of check it out after, or they mentioned it briefly, but in the midst of everything that was happening, that was difficult. So I really try to prevent myself as a resource. I reserve spots so that if patients need to be seen immediately, they can come in. I've assembled a team that we kind of get things started in a very streamlined way. I partner with local pharmacies to be able to get medications delivered within 48 to 72 hours if we need to do random starts. So those are things that I put in place so that if I can make this process easier for them, both their provider and the patient, then they will be more receptive to referring to me and allowing their patients to go through with treatment before they come back. It seems to me, again, this is coming from a non-clinician, but it seems to me almost negligent to not refer to an REI, especially if someone is about to go through chemo. And I probably wouldn't have believed that happened at any kind of scale, but I was in my home city. I was talking to an oncologist at a social event, had nothing to do Mm -hmm. with work, told her about what I do for a living. She had no idea of the REIs in our town. She had never referred out. Uh, and she said, oh, maybe yeah, I should start doing that. It's like, yeah, maybe you should. <laughs> why, why don't you go ahead and do that? So uh, is it because, I mean, do they think that they just have so 
I mean, they do that. Cancer, of course, is life and death yeah. in, in yeah. many instances. And so uh, maybe I'm asking you to speculate, but I'm asking you yeah. to speculate. Why do you think that it's not as broadly toted of a message? Yeah, I mean, in their defense, there is a lot going on. There is a lot going on, even emotionally for the patient and the provider. And so in the midst of this long discussion that they have to talk about, they then have to remember to also bring up fertility preservation. And so I think in the long list of things that are a priority for them to get through with the patient, fertility preservation may be somewhere on the bottom or doesn't exist. I also think that there is an assumption as providers, we have our own bias as much as we try to exclude them that one, this process is expensive. It's timely. You may not be able to afford it. So what is, you know, the purpose of going through all these hoops just to say, well, I'm not going to do it anyway. And so I've had patients come back and say, well, providers said, Hey, it's expensive. It's out of pocket. You're probably not going to want to do it. And when you present the option, like that, that really isn't counseling the patient in a very neutral way. And so I think a lot of what I try to do is even if it's just a quick fact sheet that I'm like, hey, you can pick this up and take in your office so that they can save their visit to do their counseling and the patient can then read about this and contact the clinic as they need to is a compromise between us both. I'm just really trying to make their job easy without taking up much time from the primary counseling that they want to do. Is it the same with elective fertility press for... OBGYNs, do you suppose that they're not doing, and maybe this is an assumption, but for what I'm gathering, they're not doing a whole lot of family building counseling. They're treating people who need to be treated. They're referring to REIs once they, once they encounter infertility or once they encounter something like endo or, or PCOS, but just from a, oh, you're 32 and Mm -hmm. this is what you want next in life. I don't know that's happening. Mm -hmm. What education needs to be bridged for the fertility preservation side for referring providers? So to your point with generalists, I actually do think they do quite a bit of family planning and family planning in our world is always expansion, growth, wanting kids, but family planning in their world also includes contraception. So they do have very clear conversations with patients about what are their family planning goals. And what I will say for the elective fertility preservation, I would say the patient leads that referral. So most times when I get patients coming in for elective fertility preservation, it's truly something that they advocated for themselves. They said, hey, I heard about this. I want to know this. Can I see someone? And that's how they come to me. Or if they come on their own accord directly to REI, they come in well-read about about the process and and kind of have an idea of what it looks like. So it's interesting. There, there's a little more initiative there because they have a very clear goal versus from the oncofertility perspective, this may not have been something you were even ready to think about. And now I have to pose this question to you. So that's, that's my thought there. And then in terms of just how do we improve girls from, from, from providers across discipline. I think like you said, education, making them aware that this is accessible. This can be done in a timely manner. We're 
welcome to collaborate, to help coordinate care with patients so that we don't create treatment delays and that compromise their cancer diagnosis or their treatment outcomes. So a lot of what I do is just education and lending myself as a resource. And like I said, creating as simple as a a patient fact sheet with your card and your clinic's information is an easy way to walk into an oncology office. Maybe it's Hemonc or Surgeonc, and you just come in and you're like, hey, I'm an REI in the area. I have a strong interest in fertility preservation. If you come across patients, feel free to refer them. This is a patient fact sheet, and they can read this in the waiting room while they're waiting to see you. And if they have any follow-up questions, they can contact me directly. That makes their job easy. I haven't taken up counseling time from what they need to to get across to the patient. So for them, that works. So we talked about referral patterns. We talked about referral tactics. We talked about some Terminator 2 stuff. We talked (laughs) about your interest in fertility preservation as a practice area. I want to go more into practice areas in general because there are younger docs listening and thinking mm-hmm. of, of what that will be. So how do you delineate those duties among a group? Of, so I think we can say now that you're, you're part of the center of reproductive medicine in Houston, which was a, a six, seven doc group. It was prior to me joining, there was four, I replaced one physician and one retired. So there's four of us now, but we're kind of like acquiring more. So We're getting there. You got some more docs come and Mm -hmm. even know one of them. And then you also have a big announcement as joining one of our bigger groups, the Shady Grove group. Mm -hmm. And so when one's doing that, and in your case, we're talking about fertility preservation, but for other people, it's going to be recurring pregnancy loss. It might be, and might be endometriosis. It might, how does that work within a practice or how could it work? Because I imagine the way it works varies differently from practice to practice at some places. It's probably just a title at other places. It really is a practice area. And so mm-hmm. what does it mean to actually have that practice area? Yeah. So I, t- I definitely agree that can manifest differently depending on the business model and practice you join. For me, I knew that I wanted fertility preservation to be a part of my practice. And so I made that very clear on my interview. So for the fellows and recent grads, if there is something that you want to continue to pursue, perhaps it was in line with your research, your thesis from fellowship, be clear about that on your interview because oftentimes the practice is excited about that because that becomes an area that they can then advertise and mark and tap into that they probably are doing a few uh, fertility preservation cycles here and there. But if you're, you're passionate enough about it and you're thinking about becoming a center for that, I think that's actually a, a selling point on, on an interview for you. And so I talked very candidly about my interests on my interview and set some goals for myself. And I'm happy to be able to to be achieving those goals and creating partnerships that improve access and more importantly, coverage for fertility preservation. And from a business side, those partnerships are important because that becomes another pipeline for you to get referrals for patients. So that has been helpful for me. And that has been my approach in, in kind of carving a niche for myself and getting to know clinicians in the area that you work 
I mean, medicine is always a small community, but it can be joining local societies, going to meetings, just so that they have a face with a name. And that could be the way that you start getting referrals from an office persistently. So I say definitely network, make sure that you partner, that you're partnering in line with your career goals and, and be consistent with that. So I see the selling point for you, Dr. Bruno Gaston, or you, the physician, or you, the fellow, whoever's listening as a differentiator and a way to build your practice pretty quickly. What about, though, making sure that you're not sold by the clinic, by the practice owner, by whoever? Fellows are scarce right now, Janet. There's 44 of them. They're always scarce, but maybe only only 20% of people would have hired 10 years ago. I don't know. Uh, But now it's anybody is trying to get a doc right now. And so, oh yeah, you want to have a fertility preservation practice? Of course. Sure. We'll name it the Janet Bruno Gaston fertility (laughs) preservation consult room. (laughs) You have any deceased grandparents? We'll name the garden for them. So like most people I believe in our field, I I do believe the vast majority of people in our field are ethical, really good people. There's probably a couple that aren't, but it, but they're, they're, I do believe they're the exception. Most people are here with great hearts. Very often though, even the people with great hearts, sometimes they just want to, they just want to get the deal done. Not because they're bad people, but they're just like, oh yeah, Janet, sure. Yeah. That's what you want to do because they don't really have a clear picture of it in mm-hmm. their mind and they're willing to put whatever placeholder there without mm-hmm. firmly checking it against mm-hmm. the, what, the picture that the candidate has in their mind. So, yes. like, so I'm cautioning people right now. This is advice yes. that I may or may not be qualified to give, but for the people listening, if they have a practice area in mind and what that entails, that they should be getting that clear picture from the hiring group mm-hmm. and and making sure they're in accordance and, and probably making sure that it's in writing simply because, again, not because most people are unethical, but because writing just helps to really firm up expectations. Yeah. And yeah. so what did that have to look like for you? Or, and what does it have to look like for someone that's really serious about a practice area? No, I definitely agree with you. You want to know that they're going to be able to support that that they respect that and they they understand that that's something that is a part of your career goal. For me, I kind of laid out a plan. I said, this is what I want to achieve by year one. I had a goal of working with um, some specific organization. The Chick Mission is a nonprofit that provides grants to fund fertility preservation cycles. They do require a contract with the clinic. And so I told them very candidly, hey, this is an organization that I would profit with, partner with. How do you feel about that? Have you done that in the past? They were very receptive to that. And You know, I kind of, because I worked one of my mentors, Dr. Woodard at MD Anderson, I had a sense logistically of how she had things set up. And so meeting with my nurse, I said, Hey, what's my nurse's experience? Who would she be open that? I mean, I met everyone during the interview process. You can take as many visits as you want. That's something like I didn't know either. I had a lot of people that said, Hey, I went back to the practice and like kind of just shadowed a day to work with them to get a feel for the culture. So when you're entering and considering practices, yes, reviewing the contract and, and having a lawyer look over that is important, but there's also just a sense of culture that you want to assess. And that's hard to get that from just reading black and white. 
And so a lot of times I just came back up there and was like, hey, I'm just going to kind of shadow today. I want to see the feel, the flow of clinic and those things. And I was asking the nurse, would you be open to that? What are your thoughts about that? Just getting a sense of how hard was this going to be for me to build? Yeah, you could see how is she fighting? Yeah, because they'll say whatever. But the nurse, if the nurse is like, yeah, then I'm not you, know, doing that. you get a little bit of an indicator. That's a good idea. Yeah, it's a really good idea. you talk to them, the people, the support staff around you, like everyone from the front desk to the MA, because you really get a sense of perspective from everyone's everyone's job. So that to me made a difference. I'm someone that has a strong instinct, and that means more to me than, than a lot of things. I'll let you have the final thought, whether you want it to be on fertility preservation, on building a practice area within a practice, whether on dystopian futures, would that, how would you like to <laughs> on the closing remarks on the metaverse? <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, thank you for having me on. I mean, this is a great afternoon for me to, to talk about fertility preservation. It is something I am extremely passionate about. And as you can see, it the fact that we are not getting appropriate access to care, the healthcare disparities that exist across so many different communities, it is important for us as REIs to really champion that cause and make sure that we are constantly trying to advocate for those patients and provide better opportunities for future family planning, because that is really important, both for medically indicated patients and for those who decide to choose for fertility preservation electively. There are great organizations out there who are invested in, in helping practices improve access. So for those of young physicians or anyone who decides, hey, this may be an interest of, of, of mine, please check out the Chicks Mission, Baby Quest Foundation. These are great nonprofits that are strictly looking for clinics to partner with, and they are on the ground. They are lobbying for legislation to improve access and coverage to care. And they're just looking for REI clinics to partner with so that they can have patients come through. So we'll link to those organizations in the show notes. Dr. Janet Bruno Gaston, thank you so much for coming on Inside Reproductive Health. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Inside Reproductive Health, sponsored by Engaged MD. For technology to streamline patient education and informed consent, visit engagedmd.com slash IRH for 25% off your implementation fee. That's engagedmd.com slash IRH.